Well, as I said, we're continuing our evening series, A Firm Foundation, where we are examining essential core doctrines of our Christian faith. And I'm going to tip my head a little bit. You guys may have noticed, some of you, that the order we're going on is very closely tied to the order of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, so if you ever wanted to cheat and look ahead, you could know what's coming next week by following along. Um, I would strongly encourage you to take a look at it. If you have time, it is a great way to look at a concise uh, summary of what we believe on essential doctrines with a plethora of cross-references. So if you ever think I am drowning you in cross-references, um, that right there would be a tsunami, um, to be sure. Um, but before we jump in this evening to this doctrine of creation, let's pray once more. Father, we come before you this evening in the matchless name of King Jesus. Father, as we saw this morning, everything we do in word and deed is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus with thankfulness in our hearts to you through him. And so this evening, Lord, we give thanks in the name of Christ to you for allowing us to open your word and see what it is you have to say about creation, the creation that you brought into existence, each member of the Trinity. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes and ears of our hearts, that we would be brought to a place of awe, wonder, and worship. That we would see just how amazing you are as creator. And that as we look at what it means to be made in your image briefly, we would be humbled by such a privilege. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would do what only you can do, and that is incline our hearts to the very heart of God. To open our eyes to behold wonder and glory. Unite our hearts collectively as your people, as your church, to fear your name, God. That you would satisfy us with your steadfast love. Lead us into all truth. And strengthen us that we may go out into the world as ambassadors of Christ. May the words of my mouth now be pleasing in your sight, O oh God. And Holy Spirit, take the truth that is spoken, planted deep within our hearts, and may it bring forth a harvest a hundredfold. We commit this service to you now, God, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So this last week, if you were following the news, you would have noticed that there was an amazing opportunity for an amazing Bible study to happen at the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Because there was a question asked that honestly can only be truly answered with a recognition of God. And that question is, what is a woman? We can answer it scientifically. But despite popular belief, you don't have to be a biologist to answer it. We simply have to look at what God says in his word. Specifically in Genesis chapter one, because he says he made them male and female. Because as we're going to see this evening, the question is, the question of what is a woman is a question of creation. It's a question that is theological in nature, biblical in nature. 
See, the reason our culture seems so lost at sea as it relates to what is a woman or the, what is a man, Leah Thomas, a man biologically competing in women's swimming. Is that right? Is that wrong? These are, these are questions that need to be answered with Bibles open, not with poli popular political opinions. And so I'm encouraged, actually, by seeing all that happening in culture for this reason. It is an opportunity for us now to open our mouths unashamed and proclaim what God's word has to say. <laughs> you can't think of easier openings to biblical conversations right now. All you have to say is, hey, did you hear what this guy said this week? Boom, right there. You're in a biblical conversation. And so much of what's going on in the world and what is so broken in society has its very roots and answers in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Creation and fall. Just think about some of the major issues plaguing our, our world, but specifically America. Gender, sexuality, abortion, social justice issues. These are all found in the first three opening chapters of God's word. And so tonight we're going to look at creation and this won't be exhaustive because that could be a study in itself, but we're going to make some observations from God's word to help us understand this God who creates. And what's interesting is that our first point is one that's controversial now in churches but it wasn't always so. Our first point is that God made all things in six days. Who would have thought that would be a point of debate in churches? And yet it is. It is a hotly debated topic in seminaries. And somehow the more you question God's word, the more scholarly you're supposed to be. But the more foolish you show yourself. See, in the Genesis chapter one, it begins in verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. And he goes on, a second day, a third day, through six days, everything is brought into existence. And the debate centers around that word, day, yom. People say, well, there's a couple of different views. One of them is, is this idea that that word day is used more figuratively. It's not conveying a 24-hour period, but it's a term for an age of time, a period of time. Day could have been 10,000 years, one day. Could have been 100,000 years. This is how some people come to believe in something that's called uh, old earth, an old earth belief, that the earth could be millions and billions of years old. Now, let me just say, if somebody would hold to an old earth position, that does not mean that they are somehow outside of orthodoxy, that you're somehow not a Christian. 
It does seem, though, that you're taking your cues from science and allowing science to be the lens by which you interpret scripture. And that's a problem. So they say that it doesn't necessarily mean a 24-hour period. And they say, well, just look at the earth. It looks older than 10, 15,000 years old. And carbon dating and, and this and that scientific experiment says that it's so much older. So it's got to be older than that. Some people then, a lot of the people that fall into that category take Genesis 1 and 2 and interpret it as, as poetic. And we'll look at that in the second theory. But I want to make some just observations from, or points on this. The earth does look older than the 10 to 15,000 years. Sure. How old did Adam look when God made him? You ever think about that? God didn't make Adam somehow in a diaper, right? He wasn't just this baby crawling around the garden yet having full conversations. He wasn't, you know, a toddler with a wife. He was a fully grown man. And so even though biologically, physically, and in all appearance, he looked fully grown and he was, his time actually on earth was far less. And so simply just taking Adam's creation into account, we see that God can create something to look older than it necessarily is in time. Or how about if you go to the gospel according to John? In John chapter 2, we see Jesus' first miracle. The wedding at Cana, he turns water into wine. Starting in verse 1. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone jars set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing two or three measures each. Jesus said to them, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. But when the people have drunk freely, then the inferior wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. How much time passed between Jesus saying, grab the water, fill the buck, the jars with water, take it to the head waiter, boom, wine. Maybe 10 minutes. I mean, I, I think it takes a little long. The fermentation process takes a little longer, Right. The grapes would have to age to a certain point. They have to be fermented, that whole process. And yet instantaneously, Jesus turns water into wine, wine that has the taste, the smell, all the properties of a wine that had been fermented far longer than the five or 10 minutes this whole interaction took. I share that because as we think about the world appearing older than it is, as we think about the six days of creation, we have to see that when God makes something, it can appear older than it truly is 
his, in history. God can make something to appear to have a history, though it has no history. Adam looked like a fully formed man that had an adulthood of history, though he didn't. The wine that these people drank at the wedding at Cana appeared to have a history of the, the berries growing, the grapes growing, the fermentation, though it didn't. And so, let us understand that when it says that the world is created in six days, six, and what the testimony of Scripture seems to uphold is six 24-hour periods, don't be thrown because science says, well, the world looks older. Of course, he had to make it habitable. Something to consider where so much of this debate centers. Also, as I mentioned before, a phrase that I have come to despise, and I think we should despise, especially when it comes to our biblical interpretation, trust the science. If we've learned nothing over the last two years, we should question the science. Because science always seems to be changing. There's a great debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham that's out there where they're talking about radiocarbon dating and the age of the earth. And I may get this a little long. Ken Ham talks about this stone that had been carbon dating. And I believe Bill Nye said it was millions of years old, but there's a piece of wood inside the stone that was only thousands of years old. How does that happen? So you can't trust those things as if they're infallible. Science is always changing. So we don't allow man-made scientific discovery and processes to be the lens by which we interpret the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. It's like when they said, well, what about dinosaurs? And yet recently they find dinosaur tissue that still has blood vessels in it. How does that happen? That was 65 million years ago. Unless somebody's creating some kind of Jurassic Park scenario we don't know about. It seems as if science is left scratching their head and the word of God shows itself to be true. So let's not allow, let's not despise science. Some of the greatest scientists historically have been followers of Christ. But we don't allow man's processes to determine how we understand God's word. Now, that's one view of the word day in Genesis 1, the creation account. The other, some people say it's not historical at all. Really, Genesis 1 and 2, some people say is figurative or symbolic. And so they denied that Adam was actually an, a historical individual. They say, well, Adam represents all types of human-like people and that they're open to Christian evolution. It's possible for some who are Christians and hold to a Christian evolution that somewhere along the line, Curious George was an uncle of ours. So instead of God making Adam as the pinnacle of his creation, they allow for evolutionary processes. They say it's symbolic, it's figurative. They say Genesis 1 and 2 is not, a his, it's not about history. I mean, it's not about science, it's not a scientific manual. Some prominent pastors and theologians out there say Genesis 1 and 2 is more poetic in nature. It's interesting. I'm not an English major, though I do love 
literature and reading. I love poetry. You know what I never have read in poetry? Specific details like where the Garden of Eden was located. That seems like a weird way to write poems. To give the exact type, uh, location, what kind of stones were there. That, that reads very specific. See, so much within Genesis, the way it's speaking is historical in nature. And if it was a poem and it wasn't historical, then why would some of the old, the Ten Commandments refer back to the six days of creation and look at the Sabbath and use it as a model for how to structure their worship and their week? Why would Jesus uphold a historical Adam? Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 6. And he answered them and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Seems like Jesus has a belief here that that was actually a really historical event that took place. Real historical people, not representative of people groups. Jesus upholds the natural, clear reading. And it's funny, this is something that hasn't actually been debated all that often until recently. Or if you go to Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And Jesus was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That Sabbath reference is referring to the six days of work and the one day of rest that mirrors the creation account. Or Mark chapter 10, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. That does not seem symbolic or figurative to me. And it doesn't seem like Jesus is thinking so either. Or how about Luke chapter 3? Luke chapter 3, I think, should really put this conversation to rest, whether it's symbolic or figurative, whether it's a real historical atom. Because in Luke chapter 3, we have a genealogy. Starting at verse 23, let's read. And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Methats, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Rez, and he goes, goes on and on and on. Go to verse 28. I'm sorry, the verse, not 28. Son of verse, to go to verse 38 as it goes on. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are not symbolic or figurative. The very 
family line of Christ is linked to a historical Adam, a real man. And if, did you ever, if somebody wants to question the historicity of Adam, the gospel's at stake if you just debate Adam. This is why we have to understand the creation account. It's six days, six 24-hour periods, the most natural reading of scripture, and that Adam and Eve were real individuals, not representative, because if you deny a true literal Adam, you deny them, you put the gospel at stake. Listen to Romans chapter five, verses 12, starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned for until the loss, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Do you see how all of this is linking this one man, this one who sin entered through to a historical Adam? If Adam was just represented of a, of a people group, he would have said sin entered in through one man. The argument in Romans 5 here is that there was one man, Adam, who fell. And there's one man, Christ, who succeeds because Jesus is the second Adam. Doesn't mean that Jesus is the second people group. These are gospel issues. This is why we cannot play loose and fast with what the Bible says. All that was created was created by God. He did it in six days, and he created one man and one woman named Adam and Eve. My concern is in, the, in an effort for people to sound so intelligent, they end up sounding irreverent. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. God made the world. And God made man. And we're going to look more at God's creating of, of man there's an important question or an important point for us to hear as we talk about this creation. And I know we're, this is a 30,000 foot flyover, but we have to understand God made all things. Why? For his glory. For his glory. You exist for the glory of God. You don't exist because he was lonely. Listen to how it talks about God creating all things for his glory. The first passage would be Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they were without excuse. God displayed by God creating. He showcases himself. He puts himself on center stage. He allows man to behold God. His power, his wisdom, his goodness are on full display. And what I find so challenging about that is when is the last time we're so busy 
that we don't, when was the last time we looked up and, and just marveled at his power, his wisdom and his goodness in the world that's made? Some of us are more outdoorsy than others. So some of us do that more than others, but some of us are so busy that we don't. But there's literally stars hanging in the sky that he made. Stars that are bigger than our earth. Did you ever marvel at the fact that the power of God, that there are rocks ripping through space that could just destroy our world? And yet, that's like a pebble to him. He can just take care of it. That's amazing. There are creatures swimming at the bottom of the ocean that he has made that we've never seen. On a really rainy day, you see all those little worms coming out of the ground. That's him. Spring is coming. Trees will bloom. That's his power, his goodness, his wisdom. In the winter, the intricacy of a snowflake. The, Jonathan Edwards wrote a dissertation, The Beauty of a Spider's Web. When was the last time you marveled over a spider's web? His power, his wisdom, his goodness are on full display. We live in an art museum. The world is an art museum of his handiwork. We're too busy focusing on ourselves and we're not focusing on him, which is actually the reason we're here. I'm too busy. Creation itself speaks about God. It's an amazing thing to think that creation is actually preaching. But listen to what it says in Job chapter 12. In Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. But now ask the beasts and let them instruct you. And the birds of the sky and let them tell you. Or muse to the earth and let it instruct you. And let the fish of the sea recount it to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of Yahweh has done this? And whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all the flesh of man? Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes its food? Wisdom is with age men with long life is discernment. Do you see how in the writer of Job here is pointing to created things to testify to the reality of God? That's not saying that these creatures and creations are actually speaking the way we do, but they are pointing to God. As we look at them, we can learn things of God. It's amazing seeing, you know, summer comes and houses warm up and lots of houses have ant problems. Would you ever marvel at how these ants are so organized and strong and methodical you would honestly think that they spend all winter planning out the logistical procedures of what's to come. <laughs> they are just orchestrated. How do they know to do that? Because they're created by God. They display his wisdom. The moon hanging where it is, perfectly situated so that our world is not taken over by waves of water. All the other planets situated so meteors and asteroids hit it. Our atmosphere so things burn up before ever destroying us. His power, his wisdom, his goodness testifying. Put on animal planet and see these creatures take care of their own, fleeing from predators. It's amazing. 
It's amazing. Everything is testifying to the glory of God. This is why he created. It's so sad that so many believe the world is a cosmic accident. I've spilled a lot of things, spilled beverages, I've spilled food, I've spilled paint as a kid. Never created anything masterful out of it, just a mess right there. <laughs> Somehow things just spilled over and created everything in its beauty. Somehow the universe just, nothing became everything, right? The universe just did its thing accidentally and you have a rose. Take a book at a Legos and just keep dumping them over and over and over again. Tell me if you ever get the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> no, right? You just, that takes, it takes a mind to create. That's why we say creation testifies, proclaims, preaches, sings of the power, the wisdom, and goodness of God. It also speaks to his authority. Again, in Job chapter 38. Job 38, verses 4 through chapter 39, verse 30. We're not going to read all those. But if you read there, right, starting at verse 4, the question is asked. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then he goes through a series of questions pointing to the created world. Were you there, Job? It's extremely dangerous and extremely arrogant that we, in our finiteness, say there is no God living in a world, in a universe that testifies to the very existence of him. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said once, if, the, if there was no God, man would never have discovered there is no God. <laughs> this is why apologetics matter. Not to argue, but to worship. Apologetics is more for the believer to grow in their awe of who God is. Not so you can debate Bob the atheist at Starbucks. I learned that one the hard way. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 2. Thus says Yahweh who made the earth, Yahweh who formed it to establish it, Yahweh is his name. It's right there. A lot of money that can be saved in college tuition for kids with that question right there. It speaks to his authority. The one who made the earth is the one who has control over it and everything inside of it. Or how about Psalm 19? Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm to this very thing. It speaks to his glory and majesty in creation. Verses 1 and 2, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Day to day pours, out spe pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Talks about his glory. Talks about his majesty. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. It talks about his unchanging and eternal nature. Of old, you founded the earth, 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. And even they will perish, but you will remain. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Here's one of the amazing things. I love that spring's coming. Summer will be here, but then fall's going to come and leaves begin to die. And everything kind of goes gray and the amazing, beautiful colors of spring and summer are gone. It reminds us that nothing really lasts forever except God. God uses his creation to remind us that he alone is eternal, but that we can be with him through Christ. Creation testifies that it's all for his glory. We see his power, we see his wisdom, we see his goodness. We see his authority, we see his glory, we see his majesty, we see his unchanging and eternal nature. The problem is we walk around this amazing thing he's created with our eyes closed. With our eyes closed. Or we appreciate it and we love the create we love the gifts more than the gift giver. Take that beautiful vacation. You see that maybe you're by the waterfront if you're in a tropical area, by the ocean. And it's just, it's so beautiful. But somehow you go so far, but don't take that last step to let it lead you to praise and worship. I remember when I lived in Washington State, I wasn't a believer. And we went to this area where you could see orcas coming out of the water and get really close. And it was beautiful. And I just thought it was a beautiful accident. That's really cool. But here's one of the things about God's creation. Sometimes you're so overwhelmed with the beauty, the wonder of it all, that it feels as if the heart has to praise, has to give gratitude. But if you don't have God, who do you give praise and gratitude to? God has given us creation to draw us to himself. In this creation, it was a work done by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father spoke. The Son created. The Holy Spirit gives life to it. Listen to the role of God the Son, John chapter 1, verse 3. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that is not going to be. The father plans, the son creates, the spirit gives life. It's the same thing for our salvation. In Genesis 1-2, we heard about the spirit of God hovering above the waters. So that's creation in general. That enough should keep us on our faces. Not enough should say, well, the application is to go on a walk tonight. Bundle up, get warm, take the dog for a walk and look up at the stars and recognize how small you are. But God goes further in his creation. He goes to the creation of man, the creation of people. So let me ask this question. When was the last time that you stopped to consider that everybody you walk past Everybody in this world is made in God's image. 
every single person is made in God's image, young and old, athletic and not athletic, all shapes, sizes, and colors, all levels of intellect, all different shades of color of skin, wherever you're at in the melanin spectrum, whether you're in America, South America, Europe, China, every single person is made in the image of God. There is no one greater than, there aren't greater groups and lesser groups. Everybody is made in his image. Everybody has value, dignity, and worth. So let's look at how God made man. Again, we go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created them, him male and female. He created them. Side note, did you catch the our language, the plurality speaking of the Trinity? Now notice it says God made them male and female. Which means, again, contrary to what our culture says, you don't get to determine whether you're a male or a female. You don't get to determine whether you're a man or a woman. God has already determined that. If there's any confusion, go in your room and look in the mirror. and You can figure out how God made you. It's very simple. I don't understand why this is up for debate. God made them male and God made them female. God is the one who determines our gender, our sex. We don't even have to divide these words up. That was, that, that's, that's man finding ways to get away from God's design, trying to separate your, your, your gender from your sex and all this. No. Male and female, he made them. And when he made them male and female, he made them in his image. Being made in God's image means something unique because nothing else is made in God's image. If you were to go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, now we get an up-close look at how this comes into happen. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and so the man became a living being. If you go to verse 21, you hear about the creation of the woman. So Yahweh caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman. He brought her to the man. I don't know if you ever realized this. Do you realize the creation of man was the only thing God created as a hands-on activity? Everything else was spoken into existence. This is says he formed, he breathed life. He took the rib, he closed the side, he shaped and formed the woman. The creation of man is such an intimate connection to God that is the only thing that's described as a hands-on activity. Now, that word image, it means replica, reflection. 
You and I were made to be a replica of God. To image forth who he is. Now, being made in the image of God means that we have knowledge. That we have righteousness. That we can be holy. It means that we can communicate. That we can create. It means we have emotions. It means we have the capacity to love. It means that we're moral creatures. We looked weeks ago at some of the attributes of God that we share with him. They're called the communicable attributes of God. They're the parts of us that make us like him. And that's important to understand. He created us to be like him. We don't create him to be like us. It also means we're spiritual creatures. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. We have a spirit as well, or a soul. So it can be said that the image of God is our identity. Now there's the reality that when Adam sinned, we'll look at that in a couple of weeks, that that image of God was broken, but it wasn't removed. You cannot lose the image of God. It's part of who you are. The image of God isn't something given to you. It's what you are in yourself. You are the image of God. That carries implications in how we interact and relate to others. On how we treat people. On how we think of people. This is why I don't understand how some people who believe that you're nothing but grown-up bacteria are so heartbroken about the death and atrocities happening right now in the war in Ukraine. Why do you care? It's bacteria killing bacteria. But if everybody is truly made in the image of God, has value, dignity, worth, is worthy to be treated with respect, and we see them killing each other, destroying each other, that is heartbreaking because they are destroying what God has created for himself. But if there is no God, why does life even matter? It is the image of God why people have value. And this is why we know that people suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness because people still care about people. Why would you care about anyone? That's not even to answer the question of why do you care, right? Because I don't see other animals mourning the death of other animals. I don't see gazelles being like, man, you see the lion killed the wildebeest that day. It's really sad. We should, have, we should mourn the wildebeests. No, animals don't care because they don't have the capacity of affection. They don't have the capacity to care. They don't have the image of God. This is why we care about each other. This is why Christ comes. He restores what man has broken. He has restored the image of God. We hear this in Colossians 3.10, which we looked at a few weeks back. To put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge of the one who created him. Man may be a good image or a bad image, but he will always be the image of God. 
And this is why, again, I think of our my family that don't say they profess don't believe in God. It's not true. Because no individual can truly know themselves apart from God. The only basis for knowing self is knowing God. This is why Romans 1.18 is so powerful. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so if we're made in God's image, it also means that we were made to have fellowship and communion with him. One of the beautiful things in Genesis 2, one of the sad things, but beautiful things is in Genesis 3, when God comes to the garden to find out what's wrong, it said that as it was the practice, he was walking in the garden. When God created man, he created Adam and Eve. We get a glimpse that it was the normal practice for God to commune, to walk in the garden with his creation. All of us were created to commune with God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it reads, God blessed them and said to them, that means he's speaking, he's communing with them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. God was communing with them, but God was also giving them a mission. Being made in the image of God also means that our life has a purpose. We don't simply exist. We exist for his glory and for his will, his purposes. God was saying, as image bearers go, take dominion over the earth, and then also fill the earth with more image bearers. Fill the earth with people that reflect me. Rule over every created thing in a way that reflects my rule over you. That was their mission. In Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. He created Adam with a purpose. To cultivate, to keep. That word keep can also be protect. God created the man to be a gardener and a guardian. He creates the woman to be a helpmeet to Adam. He creates both of them and puts them in a marital unit. God is the author of marriage. Therefore, God determines what marriage is and says, now let your marriage reflect my relationship to you. And we see the fullness of that in Christ when it says that he is the bride in the church. He is the groom and the church is the bride. But as we'll see, because of sin, that gets radically destroyed. But we're not, and we're not called to take dominion anymore. There's a lot of talk about, well, as God's image bearers and as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to go take dominion over the world. No, we're not anymore. What the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam did. Christ has dominion. And we submit under his dominion. But we still fill the earth with image bearers, but we do it spiritually through discipleship. This is why you don't need biological children to fill the earth with the glory of God. You can do it by creating disciples by proclaiming the gospel, by raising people up in the maturity in Christ and having them do likewise. Yes, natural means of having children as well. We do that, we disciple our children. But now God's mission has been opened up to all in that way that in the proclamation of the gospel, we fill the earth with redeemed image bearers of Christ, devoted to becoming more like him and following him no matter the cost.
So God is the creator. The doctrine of creation shows us that he made the world and everything in it. it shows us that it was done in six days. It shows us that he did it for his glory. It shows us that man was the pinnacle of his creation, the diamond in his crown. It shows that he made us to reflect him in who we are and how we operate, that we were to reflect him in the mission that he gave us. It shows us there were spiritual creatures created in fellowship to be in fellowship with him. And it shows us that even those who deny God know that he is true because they cannot account for their own existence apart from him. I love that quote by Lewis, I believe it was Lewis. But if there was no God, man would never have discovered there is no God. It's far. He says atheism is far too easy. Everybody at some point goes out into this beautiful world, broken with sin, yes, and recognizes, knows in their heart of hearts, I'm not here by accident. I'm here by design. In their heart of hearts, everyone knows that no matter what they say. Go up to a new father who just held this child for the first time and say, it's quite the accident you have there. <laughs> Almost be offended, right? Why? Because at that very moment, something deep within the very heart knows this is unique. This is purposeful. This is designed. In their heart of hearts, they know it's God. You know, we live in a post-Christian America, in a post-Christian world. I wish Valentine's Day cards were more honest. I wish they would say, you are I find you to be the most beautiful bacteria around. Right? That's all you are. You're a bacteria. There is no God. You're not a creation. You're not the diamond in God's crown of creation. No. See, nobody lives that way. Everybody lives in this world for the most part as if other people have value, dignity, and worth. We care so much about the world and go green and electric cars. Why do you care? Why do you want to steward the world? Because deep in your very hearts, you know that it was made by God, that you were made by God, and that you are accountable to him. The doctrine of creation is a beautiful creation, but it's one we don't spend enough time on. God's given us two books. He's given us the book of natural theology, the world. And then he's given us this book or general revelation and special revelation. We need both. There is a danger in only living in the word of God and only living in special revelation and almost looking down, despising general revelation, the created world God has made. That would be an error, a huge error. We need to definitely live in the word of God. But notice as we live in the word of God, we're also living in the world that he made. And so we should marvel at it. But marvel at it only to the degree that allows us to marvel and glory in him who made it all. There's so much more that can be said about this. Um, would love to talk afterwards if anybody has questions. There's so much to talk about the creation in the six days. I know I avoided getting into all that for one reason. Because we're going to miss the forest for the trees. But I wanted us to walk away this evening to know that there is a God who made it all and it shows us how glorious he is.
And I didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about who we are made in his image because I don't want you to fall in love with you. I want you to fall in love with him who made you. So with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that you made all things. That in and through Christ, you uphold, sustain all things. And then in Christ, all things hold together. Universes and galaxies and meteors and stars and planets and beetles and sharks and bears and ants. You know, all these things exist because you spoke them into existence. Increase our curiosity into all that you've made and do. Help us regain that childlike wonder where I remember when my son was born, God, that we would take him and he would just love to run his fingers across the bark of a tree. He didn't know what to make of it. Help me not be bored of bark, Lord. Help me have that childlike wonder of all that you've made. And help me the more that we go as, as, as followers of Christ, help us, Lord, that the deeper we go into your word, the wider our eyes are opened to the world. And help us, Lord, value people that you have made in your image, that every single person is an image bearer of Christ with value and dignity and worth. That is not contingent on what their political views are or what their worldview is. They are people made by you. So help them see them as such and love them as such. But let us also know, Lord, that that image is broken. And so help us open our mouths to proclaim Christ so that broken image bears can be renewed image bears in the image of the Lord Jesus. With spring approaching, Lord, and the weather warming up, I pray for our church. I pray that we would spend more time with your creation, Lord. More time marveling at it all. Yes, there is a day coming where you will re renew creation. It talks about, you tell us in Romans 8, there is coming a day where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That doesn't mean we hate this one. It means that this one should give us a foretaste of what's to come. So help us appreciate it and help this world and its beauty within it help us long for the world to come. Help us run now as we look forward to that day that we will run and never get tired in the new world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.